Now don't the rest of you go running off. <laughs> Children's Church. Happy Labor Day to you. And uh, man, isn't this weather just been fantastic? Love it. It's just a wonderful place and just an opportunity to get out and enjoy some of this. I hope that you... I know some people are out camping and having a great time this weekend. And I uh, have to say I'm a little bit jealous, but it's good to be here. It's good to be here with the people of God, reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, preaching the Word of God. I get to do that. Today we're going to finish Psalms for now. Uh, we're going to come back to it next summer. We're going to take a little break, and I'm going to move into a new fall topic, and I'll tell you what that is next week. It's kind of a little bit of a surprise. How's that? You've got to come back and check it out to find out. But we're going to put a a little period on the book of Psalms and then look forward to hitting it again next summer. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this short little trip through this incredible book. Um, here's the good news. Today, this is not a psalm of lament. You know, one of the things that we learn in the book of Psalms is how do you process the emotions? How do you deal with life as it really is sometimes? Difficult hard, sad, and I think the book of Psalms speaks to that, and we've been there, we've been visiting that and talking about that, and how God is such a pillar of strength and encouragement to us in the times of lament. Today is much more upbeat, and it's a good one to kind of end on um, until we come back next summer. This is a psalm, and if you look at the title above Psalm 45, same as last couple weeks, Sons of Korah, these are the people who were in charge of the worship, leading the music and the instruments. The Sons of Korah, the authors, it's a maskal, meaning it's a psalm of learning and wisdom. So there's, we're going to learn today. We're going to gain some wisdom from Psalm 45. But then it says on the title, and this is really cool, it's a wedding song. It's a wedding song. I love Weddings. There's something about a wedding, isn't there? The sights, the beauty, the sound, the joy, the festivity, the family, the ceremony. Everything is just beautiful for that period of time as you celebrate the bringing together a husband and wife in holy matrimony. And I, one of the things I love doing most as a pastor is doing weddings. This is a wedding month for me. I have three weddings within a week period. Two I'm officiating and one I'm attending. So I know that this is a busy time for the Klein family, for Harold, his daughter's getting married, and I'm doing that ceremony. And then the McLean family, a week later, um, uh, Caleb, and Marissa are going to be married, and I'll, I'll be attending that one out in Hillsboro area. So three weddings within seven days, and I love it. Bring it on. I'm ready. Um, you know, one of the things that's fun about weddings is in the reception. This is the one time probably in my life where you might see me dancing. <laughs> it's true. I am not a good dancer. Don't get me wrong here. It's not that I am good at dancing. It's not that I do this a lot. But in wedding receptions, you might see me out there on the dance floor. 
enjoying myself, making a fool of myself, yes, all of the above, but you know what? There's just something about a wedding that brings that joy out. This is not just any wedding in Psalm 45, though. This is the wedding of a king. This is a royal wedding. So let me give you just kind of a summary of the chapter, Psalm 45. It's composed to celebrate the wedding. It's a song, it's a poem, actually, that would have been recited and later put to music. After a description of his royal glory and his kingdom, his bride, the queen, is introduced. So the first half is about the king, the bridegroom. The second half is about his bride, the queen-to-be, who is there. She's encouraged to forget her people and her father's house. We're going to look at that instruction. The king is now her lord. The king. Finally, she's described in all her glory as she's brought into the royal household. So this is kind of how the psalm is laid out. It's this beautiful poem song that would have been sung or performed at a royal king's wedding. That's what Psalm 45 is, and it's a beautiful telling of that. It's very similar in style to the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. And I want to encourage you, this is a little plug, um, I'm looking forward to middle of October when we're getting away as couples to hear Marty and Linda Trammell speak on the Song of Solomon in relationship to marriage. I want to encourage you to come. Be a part of that weekend because he's going to open up for us that book, that great book that is often like, a lot of people are like Song of Solomon, whoa, and avoid it, you know. It's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful books in all of Scripture. And Marty Trammell and Linda, his wife, are going to help us see how we, we can learn so much from it for our relationships as couples. Come, sign up, be a part of that. It's going to be a great weekend. So we have a wedding poem or song. It's a royal wedding. There's something about a royal wedding. Think about that. In our history, you know, I, I remember back in Charles and Diana, right? Back in the 80s. That was viewed all over the world. Millions of people tuned in to watch that incredible celebration. And more recently, the two sons have gotten married. And those have been huge events with all the publicity and everything, but there's something beautiful about royal weddings. But today's passage goes even deeper, and that's the part that I want you to see. It's more than just a royal wedding, it's a messianic psalm. Everything, and as you read this chapter, and we're gonna see that it's just Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, all over it. It's a messianic psalm. It's a beautiful reminder of who he is and who we are as the bride of Christ. So Martin Luther said, there's, introduction, there's instruction here. Remember, it's a masculine. There's learning. He says there's instruction here for the church, which becomes Christ's bride and is married to him by faith. That's the story of the New Testament. When Christ comes as the bridegroom, and we enter into a relationship with him through faith, we are his bride. In your Bibles, just turn to Ephesians 5. I want to read this passage. Paul clues into this beautifully in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. I'm going to read this and just hear how he describes Christ and his church 
the bridegroom and bride, but yet in, in front of that, there's an illustration that's living out, and it's called marriage, the husband and his wife. So listen to Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Man, I just met with a couple the other day. I said, if we could live this verse right here, marriage would be beautiful, and it would work, and we would simplify a lot of things. Submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. His body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Why? Why submission? That's a hard word for some people, right? Well, because... Marriage is simply a living illustration of Christ and his church. The bride represents the church. The church submits to Christ, so the bride should submit to the husband. It doesn't stop there, though. Look what it says in the next verse, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Whoa. And husbands, if you're hearing this, and I read this to the husbands when we do marriage counseling, I said, look, there's twice as many verses, by the way, for husbands as there is for the wives <laughs> in Ephesians 5. So husbands, listen up. This is the standard. We're to love our wives. How? Selfishly? If she makes me happy? No. As Christ loves his church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Wow. In the same way, okay, now he's stepping back to marriage here. In the same way now, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. Normal people Normal thinking, we don't hate our body, we love our body, and we should, it's okay. Just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, quotes Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. <laughs> but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What? Wait a minute, Paul, I thought you were talking about marriage, I'm confused. He's weaving the two together so closely because that's what it's really all about, Christ and his church, the bridegroom and his bride. However, going back to marriage, <laughs> he's back and forth. Last verse. Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. The wife must respect her husband. So in this we see that marriage is a beautiful thing, and why? I really believe marriage is a beautiful thing because it represents, it's a living illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church, living out before the world so they can see it. And that's the beautiful thing. So let's look at Psalm 45, starting in the first five verses where the author addresses the king. Look what he says in the first five verses here. He says, My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Those are just beautiful words. You are the most excellent of men. 
Your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourselves with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Wow. That's a beautiful description of the king written by this author. And he says there in verse 1, just kind of introducing himself, he says, my heart is stirred. I moved within to write this. It's like it's boiling inside him. I can't keep it in. It, reminded, it reminds me of the word inspiration. When we speak of Scripture, when, author, when people write Scripture, they're moved by the Holy Spirit. They, are, they speak as if God's speaking. And we don't really know who the author is here necessarily, but we know that this is a part of the inspired Word of God in the Holy Scriptures. So he says, I'm being moved in my heart. So there's a noble theme. This is a wedding. This is a royal wedding of a king. It's a beautiful, noble theme. He says, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. This would have been either recited as a poem or maybe put to music and sung during the wedding. Later, it would have been put down and written down as it is here, appears for us in the book of Psalms. So he says, it's my tongue. I'm speaking this, I'm singing this. Later on will come the pen. It will be recorded, written down, to be read later on. A lot of Bible scholars think that maybe this, the king is the poet's patron who paid him to write this beautiful poem for his, his wedding and someone that the king would know. Look at verse 2. He's going to give three characteristics of the king. In verse 2, he says, number one, you are most excellent of men. What does that mean? It means that really the emphasis here is on character more than it is on his outward appearance, although he may or may not have been a handsome person, we don't know, but it's speaking to the heart, to the character, the inward qualities of this king. Think back to David and Saul. Saul looked like a king. He was taller than everybody, he was handsome, he looked kingly. Then there was later on little David, right? Little shepherd boy over here. One looked apart and really wasn't, right? Saul, kind of a disaster. David didn't maybe look like a king, but man, his heart. He had a heart after God, right? His character, most excellent of men. In Isaiah 53, 2, we're told he grew up before him like a tender shoot. This is speaking of Jesus, Isaiah is. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing that said, wow, that guy is sharp looking. That wasn't Jesus. He came to us in beauty of character, who he was. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It wasn't the outward stuff. It was the inward. His lips are anointed with grace, the second quality. His character extends to the way he speaks. His lips anointed with grace. This was said of Jesus in Luke 4.22 Early on in his ministry, he had just been baptized, and he was in Nazareth, his hometown. He's in the temple, and he picks up a scroll to read Isaiah, and he reads the scroll, and he says, this is about me, and then he just kind of sits down, 
And this is the response, Luke 4, 22. It says, all spoke well of him. They were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? Again, they're in his hometown. They knew the family, for goodness sake. We know Joseph. He's a good guy, but what's going on here? He speaks graciously. There's words that come out of his lips that are gracious. There's a quote by a gentleman named Horn that I came across in one of the commentaries, and I thought it summarized Jesus and his life. And here's what it says. His word instructed the ignorant, resolved the doubtful, comforted the mourners, reclaimed the wicked, silenced his adversaries, healed diseases, controlled the elements, and raised the dead. How's that for speech, gracious speech? And then he says in the end of verse 2, God has blessed you forever, king. There's a reference there to the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and he said, your name will be great and your throne, your kingdom will be established forever. And those that followed David as kings from that point forward were under that promise, the Davidic covenant, that there's going to come a king, Jesus, the Messiah, but your kingdom will last forever, David. There's a reference there to the blessing that, and this king would most likely is either David himself, maybe, or a descendant of David and would have been blessed as part of that. You're blessed forever. Verses three to five talk about his kingdom. Who is, what is he like? Okay, look at the description. It's very military. It's very strong, powerful, mighty. Here's what it says. Gird your sword on on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies and let the nations fall beneath your feet. This is not a soft or passive king. This is a military king. When I read this, I immediately went to the book of Revelation, and we're going to be going there a lot today because there's words that are spoken here that appear there in the book of Revelation. End times. Revelation 19, verse 15 and 16. This is the second coming of the Lord in context, Revelation 19. Here's what it says. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe, on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The sword girded on his leg. There's a powerful image of Jesus Christ, our Lord, coming in the second coming there. He clothes himself, clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In Psalm 21.5, David is the author, and he's speaking to the Lord, and he's asking the Lord to clothe him with splendor and majesty. Here, the author is saying, clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. There's something going on here that's a little bit different, and we're going to get to that a little bit later in the chapter. Clothe yourself with these things. Then, in this majesty... There's three qualities, truth, humility, and justice. Spurgeon, Charles, who has a great 
commentary on this section. Here's what he says. I love this because in my mind, this is how I see it. He says, it's like Jesus is riding this chariot in victory and he's pulled by three horses. Truth, humility, and justice. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A conquering Jesus, the Messiah, is in this chariot of victory and he's being pulled by these three horses in victory. Truth is not just accuracy with facts. Truth is faithfulness. Truth is living it out. That's Jesus. Humility. How did Jesus come into Jerusalem? On a donkey. Humble. The humble servant. That's how he came to us. Then there's justice. He is just. He treats his subjects fairly. He treats them justly. That's our king. Your right hand does awesome deeds. Remember, the right hand represents authority and power in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish thinking. King, with your right hand, because of your authority and the power that you have, you're going to do great things. Sharp arrows piercing the hearts of the king's enemies. In Acts 2, verse 36 and 37, Peter gets up day of Pentecost and he preaches a sermon talking about who Jesus is. And here's his words, and look what it says about the arrows. He says, therefore, he says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, ouch, both Lord and Messiah. What happened? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. It was like an arrow piercing their heart right there. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, great question. What what shall we do? What was Peter's response? Next verse, he says two things. Repent, be baptized. Confess your sins before the Lord Almighty. Be baptized in his name and follow him. That's what you do. So there's this arrow cutting to the heart of his enemies. And this idea of his enemies, these nations are beneath his feet. There's passages that speak about how when Jesus rules... Everything will be put, the nations will be his footstool. That's how powerful he is. That's this king. That's a picture, again, of who Jesus is. But it goes on to describe the bridegroom in even more detail, starting in verse 6. Look what it says, 6 through 9. It says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness, you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh, aloes, cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. There's a huge shift here from describing a human king to God. He's describing God. The words are deity here. It's a shift from his character and his kingdom to his very nature, the fact that he is deity. In the New Testament, these two, first two verses, verse 6 and 7, are quoted. So Hebrews 1, verses 8 through 9 Here's what it says in the book of Hebrews. And in 
Hebrews 1 is talking about how Jesus Christ is superior. And he's talking about, specifically in chapter 1, he's superior to angelic beings. Angels are great, they're powerful beings, but there's someone who's greater. And then he quotes this, and he pulls out Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7, right into the middle of Hebrews. And here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, if I can find it here in my notes, about the Son, he says, and then he quotes verse 6 and 7 of Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The author of Hebrews says, I want to help you on understanding something. I want you to understand this is Jesus that this is talking about in Psalm 45. This is God. So Jesus is God. Let me give you some more understanding here. So the king is Jesus, he is God. Secondly, God the Father recognizes him as such. And he, so that Jesus is relating to God. God, your God, it says. How can he be God and yet relating to God at the same time? The answer to that is in who Jesus is. Fully God, fully man. He's both at the same time, fully God, fully man. So he is God, but he's relating to God, the Father, both. This is the teaching. Again, there's, there's the beginning, this idea of the Trinity, this idea of three and one. They're God, but yet they're distinct, separate from each other, but yet they're one in essence. This is, again, that beginning idea Three persons who are said to be God, yet they relate to one another. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all God, but they relate to each other. Your scepter of justice, the scepter of your kingdom. Scepter was the symbol of authority of a king. What is that symbol? It's justice. Your kingdom is a kingdom of justice, God. That's the symbol. And then he says you're anointed with the oil of joy. When a king became a king, and you can read about it, when Saul became king, when David became king in 1 Samuel, they were anointed as king. And it talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon them. There's joy, but there's a reference there. And even in the Old Testament times, there was this anointing of oil, and the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. There was a designation that this is the king. This is the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Father, we have God the Son, we have the anointing of joy, which throughout Scripture there's that reference to the Holy Spirit as that. And as I thought about that too, it says Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. His life was not easy, we know that. He went to the cross, he, he suffered greatly, but yet for the joy set before him. We read that in scripture too. There was great sorrow, but yet there was great joy together. He was anointed with the spirit of joy. And that's, again, it's a picture there of who Jesus Christ is. So we shift now from this king, 
He's been speaking of the king. He's God. But now he's going to speak to the bridegroom. Look at verses 8 and 9. And he says this, All your robes are fragrant with myrrh, aloes, cassia, from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. There's this preparation for the wedding in these verses. First of all, garments scented with these three fragrances, myrrh, aloe, cassia. You know, it's important that the groom smells good. Am I right? Okay, that's true. However, it goes way beyond that. It goes way beyond that. It's not just about smelling good, which is important, by the way. But this idea of myrrh, aloes, and cassia, myrrh reminds us of the wise men's gifts that were brought to baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh, interestingly enough, is one of the spices that we used in burial. A very odd gift to bring to a baby, is it not? A spice used for preparing bodies for burial. Hmm, and gold, really? To a baby, what's going on? There's something going on here. Then you go to the book of John, chapter 19, right at the very end, after Jesus' body was taken down off the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man, asks for the body of Jesus that he could put his body in a place that was on his land that he owned, the garden tomb. So he was permitted that by the, the authorities. And it's interesting, in John 19, the last two or three verses there, it speaks of Nicodemus joining him. And it says Nicodemus bought several pounds of ointments to put on his body to prepare him to be put in the garden tomb. And it mentions two of the three here. It mentions myrrh, and it mentions aloe, specifically those two in John 19. So what's going on here, mentioning anointments that were used for the dead in a wedding ceremony? That seems very bizarre. Somehow, the groom is preparing for the wedding through his death. Does that sound familiar to us? It should. Somehow out of his death comes this fragrant incense which makes glorious the scene of the wedding. All we have to do is look at Ephesians 5, the passage that I read earlier. Ephesians 5.25 tells us this. Christ loved the church. How? He died. He gave himself for it so that he could make his bride, the church, this glorious without wrinkle, without spot, without blemish, pure, and holy. So in the middle of this wedding ceremony, death. Myrrh, aloe, cassia. It's all there. He came from ivory palaces. He not only prepares himself, but he prepares a place. There's a beautiful ivory inlaid palace that he came from and, and that he will take his bride to. There's an old hymn, and the minute I read this, it started going through my brain. It's called Ivory Palaces. Some of you are familiar with it. And I want to say, it was back, I want to say it was Roy Cameron's service, where he, it was requested, I think. Is that true? David and Janet are here. 
It had been a while since I had heard that hymn, and um, Doug Schwab sang it, so we had to Google it to find the words for it. But there's a chorus that's repeated in this, and it comes literally, I, I Googled where this song came from. It came from 1915. There was a evangelical crusade going on in Carolina, and there was an evangelist and some musicians that were with him, and his piano player read this passage, and the ivory palace has captured his imagination, and he wrote this hymn, Out of the Ivory, and here's the chorus. This is, Out of the Ivory Palaces into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. There it is. The Savior. Out of his ivory palaces he came for us. But here's the cool thing. Jesus told his disciples this too. I have prepared a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you will be also. That's the promise the ivory palaces for you and me. It's the gospel. Out of the ivory palaces, it's beautiful. It mentions honored women who are attending the bride. These are most likely bridesmaids, and very common to what we would have in our weddings, who would attend to the bride and be a part of the, her friends and part of the celebration of that day. And then it mentions at his right hand is the, is the bride in gold. Just beautiful. This wedding is about ready to begin because the bride is in the place of honor right next to the king. And when I, when I thought about that, I thought of Ephesians 2.6 where it talks about the fact that we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We, when we come to know him, we're there. We're in a place, we're seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus as his bride. Isn't that a beautiful Picture? So now we have this shift, starting in verse 10, from king and bridegroom to the bride. Look at verses 10 through 12. Listen, daughter, pay careful attention. So as he's reciting this poem, he said there's some things here for the bride that she needs to hear. And he's going to give her three instructions. Forget your people and your father's house. Number two, let the king be enthralled by your beauty. I love that. Number three, honor him, for he is your Lord. Three instructions. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. Isn't that beautiful? Verses 10 through 12, there's these three instructions that he gives to the bride. Number one, forget, leave behind, forsake your people and your father's house. Hmm. Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In any wedding, there's the giving of the bride by the dad, maybe, or a family. It's very significant. It's this illustration of your leaving behind your family. In this context, in Psalm 45, it, very well likely that this bride was from another nation, another country. She's being asked to leave that behind and become a part of Israel, to become a part of the life of the king. Same thing is true in any wedding, leaving behind father and mother, forming a new household, 
For us, it's the gospel. We're in Christ now. We're no longer in Adam. A new family, a new nature, a new name. Everything is different. We're a part of his household. Why does the bride change her name to that of the groom? Have you ever thought about that? I know some people have said that we don't want to do that, blah, blah, blah. Here's why. Because, it's, again, this is all a picture. We give up our old nature, our old name for his. That's why. I asked a couple that the other day. I said, why, why do you think the wife gives up her name for the, it seems a little bit sexist, doesn't it? I said, here's why. Because ultimately, marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. And when we come into relationship with him through faith, we give up our name. We take his. Number two, let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Man, this is easy. Do you remember the day when you got married? How enthralled you were by her beauty? I remember standing up front and seeing Patty walk up the aisle, and I was, I was blown away. Now, we did things a little bit differently back in the day. There wasn't the first view or whatever they call it now. A little bit different, right? Where now you go and see them for the first time, and that's powerful. Back then, in my day, it, was, it happened in the... I didn't see Patty until then, right? And then she walked in, and I was like, I was a mess. I was enthralled. I was enthralled by her beauty. Let him be enthralled by your beauty. Wives, let me just say this. Wives, let your husbands be enthralled by your beauty. I hear wives often say this. Oh, you know, I've gained so much weight and I just don't look good anymore and how can you find me beautiful? Please let us, as husbands, let us be enthralled by your beauty because you are to us. You really are. So, that's a command. First Peter 3 says, you know, really this beauty, it, it's talking to women here, First Peter 3, but it says, let your beauty be about what's inside your heart. It's not about external adornment and, and things that you put on and jewelry and makeup and all that, although that's great. It's really more about character in your heart and your spirit. Let it be about that, First Peter 3. Revelation 19, verse 7 to 8 talks about the bride, how beautiful the bride is to Christ. Here's what it says. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come. His bride has made ready herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Why, do, why does the bride wear a white wedding gown? Why is that such a big deal? The dress is a big deal. Because again, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of righteousness. In Christ, because of the blood of the Lamb, we're washed white. That's why. That's why it's such a big deal, the dress. It's important. It's a symbol of something really big, something really important. The last one, honor him, he is your Lord. More than just honor and respect for a human husband here, but even, even the king, this is something speaking even in larger. He's Lord. 
speaking to us. This is Jesus, honor and worship him. Then there's gifts in verse 12. One of the wonderful things about a wedding is all the gifts that you get. They pile up, right? People will want to bring you gifts. That's what it says in verse 12. They're gonna want, they're gonna come from the coastland and they're gonna just bestow you with gifts because you're related to him, the king. You're part of his family now. The glory of the bride, look at verse 13 to 15. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions, they follow her. Those brought to be with her. Those are the bridesmaids. There's this grand parade going to meet with him. Let in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Isn't this beautiful? There's just this incredible gloriousness about the bride, not because of herself, but because of her connection to the king. You know, we see the church and we see flaws and imperfections, but Christ sees his church in the beauty and the righteousness because of him. He sees the fact that we are holy. Within her chamber, there's this process of becoming beautiful. On any wedding day, right, there is the process of the bride and the bridesmaids becoming beautiful. With the guys, with the groom and the groomsmen, it takes a few minutes. Then they're sitting around doing whatever they do. But in the chamber with the bride and the bridesmaids, etc., there is a process going on over there, and it takes a while. It doesn't happen in a moment. But there's this beautiful why, because the gloriousness. Revelation 7.14 speaks of this also. Again, the book of Revelation. I answered, sir, you know. There's a question that's been answered. He said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Again, there's that image, that illustration of white garments, white robes, washed in the blood of the lamb. She's led to the king. She enters the palace of the king. She's presented as his bride. One of the coolest parts of a wedding is at the very end, it's called the presentation of the couple. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. And then they exit out and everybody applauds and goes crazy, right? And it's that beautiful moment of presenting. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 too. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. What's he talking about? I promise you to one husband, to Christ, that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul's talking to the people in Corinth that he had led, you know, that he had led to the Lord, that he was kind of their spiritual father. And he says, I wanted to present you as this beautiful bride to him. There's just this beautiful, wonderful illustration of that. Verse 16 and 17 speak of the legacy of the king. It returns back to the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princess throughout the land. That's the Davidic covenant. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. There's this legacy that's going to be carried on from one generation to the next. Again, it's a reference there to the Davidic covenant where David's sons would just carry on that throne until the time of Christ. 
But there's maybe more than that. Hebrews 2, verse 10, tells us this. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. There's this image of many, bringing many sons and daughters, children, to glory. When we enter into the kingdom with Christ, there's people that also come to faith. There's children as a part of that. It's a beautiful reminder of that. There's many sons to glory and there's praise throughout eternity. As we prepare for communion, I want to ask a couple of questions. I'm going to ask the men if they would come forward um, at this time to join with me in the communion. The marriage ceremony is a beautiful thing. Every, think about it this way, though. If every wedding is a dress rehearsal for the day when we as his bride are with him face to face, we're married for all eternity. This offer is open to all of us. Have you, the question is, have you responded to his offer? Are you ready for the wedding? Have you entered into that relationship by faith? As believers, those of you that have, I'm, here's some questions for you. We are the bride. Do you fully understand all that we have because of our union with him? All the blessings, all the gifts that we have as a result of our union with Christ. And do we understand how much he loves us? We're in a relationship with him. Just some questions to think about. I'm just going to open with a word of prayer and then we'll pass out the bread, okay? Our Father, we're grateful for this great passage of Scripture because we see in this beautiful celebration of a day where a king is getting married and all that that involves, that really it's a picture of you. You are our groom. And Father, we're grateful for the fact that we have a relationship with you through faith and all the benefits as a result of that. And Lord, there's going to be a day where we will see you face to face. The story doesn't end right here, but it just continues on into all eternity, and we're grateful for that. So Lord, bless this time as we, as we stand and we come before the table. In your name, amen.